Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. This episode is brought to you by Skillshare. Science fiction delights in showing us laser guns and sword fights, but could this ever be a real thing? So today is another Sci-Fi Sunday here on Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur, as today we let our hair down a bit and embrace our Sci-Fi roots. We will look at concepts that normally would be considered more than the realm of popular fiction than possible futures, while keeping at least one foot firmly planted in the realm of known science. Today that's going to be looking at the large quantities of fictional future weapons and trying to see how they function and if they would be usable in combat and if not, what we might substitute in. And the good news is that for any of us who grew up dreaming of a lightsaber, there's good reason to think they might be well within the realm of the possible, even in the near future, not just in a galaxy long long ago and far far away. If by some chance you haven't seen the Hacksmith team's real life 4000 degree plasma lightsaber build, make sure to check that out, and go give them a like and subscribe just for helping fulfill all our dreams, and don't forget to give us a like and subscribe while you're at it. Now it needs a lot of refining and we need vastly better power generation for a handheld and truly portable unit like we see in Star Wars, but it doesn't help us solve the other problem of why you bring a sword to a gunfight, even if it is a flaming sword. We'll try to see when and if such weapons might be even practical, if not as a primary weapon then perhaps a niche one, like as a breaching tool during boarding actions or assaults. Or potentially simply as a tool for non-militant uses, like carving through laser debris in damaged or dangerous areas, like burning buildings or collapsed mines to rescue someone. And while the episode is titled Laser Pistols and Lightsabers, we'll be looking at a lot more options, everything from monofilament hyper-sharp weapons to grungy chainsaws, from plasma rifles to needle guns. It's a big list and it's both more and less realistic than folks tend to think. First let's start with a common criticism of combat in science fiction, which is that it often seems like the weapons are no more powerful than modern ones, or even less so, and that they even have melee or close range battles. Folks might ask why some futuristic soldier has a blade and a pistol or rifle when spaceships can blow up cities, and often that would be the better tactic, but we also need to understand that the same is true nowadays. I've often heard folks refer to things like assault rifles as military-grade weapons, but they are not a frontline or main combat weapon in the same way a tank is, or a bomber is, or an artillery gun is. Assault rifles and pistols are principally personal weapons for soldiers to use, as either a backup when their main weapon is unavailable, or because they themselves aren't principally in a combat role. When my artillery unit was deployed to Iraq from 2005 to 2007, we principally reorganized to be infantry because 155mm howitzers are not ideal weapons for fighting in cities or when the goal is to minimize collateral damage to people and structures. Even then we principally relied on the crew sword weapons we could mount on armored Humvees. In high intensity warfare we would have used neither, we would have used the giant cannons to provide support to the tanks, with infantry units advancing behind them to seize ground. Most of the rest of the units would not even fire a shot because it's not their job. Their job would be recon, or getting ammo, fuel, and gear to the Ford units, or treating the wounded or inventorying supplies or making dinner. In theory anyway. In practice, only an idiot is going to openly attack a tank unless he has something much more likely to kill that tank than get himself killed while trying. 
that is the first rule of warfare after all, don't die, and serving as target practice is a good way to do that. The battlefield is not a sporting competition either, so you're not looking for a battle where things are even, that's a fight you avoid too, in favor of waiting till circumstances let you strike from an advantage. As a result of this, the folks running supplies are much better targets, because while a bunch of guns full of ammo is a big threat, a truck carrying replacement ammo is less of one. Asymmetric warfare is often misunderstood to be an assumption you engage in guerrilla warfare because the enemy has a big advantage. True enough, but in practice you're always trying to bring the battle together where you have the edges and they do not, even if you could kick the snot out of them in a fair fight. Never fight fair, that's the first rule of warfare. The only reason either side ever ends up in a pitched battle is because they blundered into each other and are worried that disengaging will be even worse than going toe to toe. That combined with bad intel, like you thought the enemy only had X number of troops and attacked, and they thought you were still a day's march away and positive rendezvous with reinforcements, and now you're both stuck fighting a battle you weren't expecting, generally the bloodiest kind. Or one of the commandos is an idiot, which to be fair is dreadfully common but usually it's bad intel. Wars are not like chess, it's not just that you don't know for sure what the enemy is doing, most of the time you're not even sure what most of your own forces are doing. Many folks refer to war as organized chaos, this is often being generous. As a result of all of this, an awful lot of modern combat goes on with what we call small arms, which includes assault rifles not just pistols or bayonets, and a lot of it goes on at fairly close range and short notice, at least for one side. This may or may not be true in the future too, but I can't think of any specific reason why it would not be as true then as now. So there may be a need for small arms and even hand-to-hand weapons in the future, so that does leave the door open for us to look at them today as a thing we might need, as opposed to purely a tendency to make science fiction shows about cowboys or samurais in space. There's a lot of caveats on this assumption though. First, a lot of close combat is happening because you are not engaged in what tends to be known as Total Warfare, also known as Scorched Earth Tactics. This is when you and the enemy just want each other dead. You do not care about civilian casualties, property damage, or concerns about third parties objecting to what you are doing. It's a lot harder to sneak small attacks in on an enemy that's burning down everything in sight and killing everyone not wearing the right uniform. We also have to consider how technology can disrupt conventional notions of stealth. This might include a suit that turns you invisible, but it could just as easily be that the opposition troops cannot be impersonated by copying one of their uniforms as they all have friend or foe transponders secured with biometric signature readers. If something like that is easy and cheap enough, you just have specially coded ones that you can give to local civilians who are on your nominal green list for interaction or passage so they can't loan theirs out or have them stolen either. You probably cannot hack into such things either. When I was in the service I sometimes joked that if you wanted to know the password to any piece of gear, you just need to look for the post-it note attached to it, but this was only a handful of years after most of the population was still getting used to Windows 95 and putting their coffee cup in the convenient holder on their PC so they could use both pointer fingers to type while hunting for the any key. Generally organizations are much better about cybersecurity these days, and regular old people are getting better cybersecurity hygiene too and I suspect hacking will be a short period of human history like piracy in the West Indies was. Hacking isn't something you can always brute force, it relies on people making mistakes. Nevertheless in the future folks will want to gather intel, be it a war or just some company stealing some other company's data, 
And odds are the best way to do that will still be to be able to go sit down at someone's desk and read their mail, or see what unintentional secrets they've accidentally left lying around. And odds are they'll have some sort of security, be it a robot or a guard or an elite strike team, ready to charge in on you, and it's really hard to infiltrate someone's office with a tank, artillery cannon, armored personnel carrier, helicopter, fighter jet, or ICBM. So that's where we get to small arms, and that's where something hard to detect can be handy too, even if it's pathetic in firepower, accuracy, or magazine capacity compared to other available gear. Knives are popular for this notion, presumably because they don't go bang and stick out less than a big sword, be it traditional steel or something glowing, ditto a small quiet pistol, and this is where we tend to get notions like monoatomic blades or needle pistols. Monoatomic or monomolecular wires or blades is the notion of a single strand of something that's incredibly strong, and can basically shear through anything because it's essentially ultra-sharp by being so skinny, it'll only disrupt molecular bonds on a single tight plane of a material it is cutting, not mash through a substance, which at the nanoscopic scale is basically what even a surgical scalper does. Being around a nanometer in diameter, such a thing can be very easily hidden, You might be able to get away with keeping a kilometer long coil of it concealed in a ring on your finger, and it might be made out of something like carbon nanotubes. Indeed, given that carbon nanotubes are chemically near identical to graphite, you could have it concealed inside a mundane pencil that would be very hard to detect on a scan, and the stuff is harder than diamond, and in this context, sharper than diamond too. A super strong and thin wire has issues with how you would use it, and as strong as these things are in terms of tensile strength, a single molecule thick cord of it isn't really very strong in human terms either, plus in practical terms there's a lot of ways a real world example might break, or bond to things we're slicing through and so on. This is very similar to a lot of the issues we have come up with things like lightsabers or adamantium claws or so on, and I've heard a lot of geek arguments over what impossibly sharp items can do or can't do, and as you might guess, participate in some too. It's a good weapon in the sense that it's not only compact and concealable but also has other uses, like a cord for climbing or potentially a modified form as a fiber optic cable for spying, not to mention that in the case of graphene or CNTs, such a wire might have all sorts of interesting electrical and thermal conduction properties, potentially allowing options like electrically heated, super hot filaments. A pocket knife isn't much of a weapon, but having one on you doesn't set off alarm bells because it's a handy tool, and such a cord might be too. It might be possible having a ring with a monofilament wire in it might be as common as pocket knives in the future. I could imagine something like the gemstone setting of a typical ring, actually being a tiny drone with the wire attached that you could control by mental commands or similar. Weaponizing it is a bit harder, you could make a sword out of it by pulling a tot on something, or make a big circular sod of it by having a weight at the end and whirling it around. One downside though is that if you can make the substance, odds are good your enemy can too, and given that it is probably easy to weave a fabric out of, would make for fairly impressive armor. To defeat such super tough armor, one concept that is frequently referenced in science fiction is the needle pistol. This is a pistol that shoots out a very skinny needle to penetrate right through armor. Folks sometimes write about such munitions and extol their virtues by saying it can fly right through someone and leave a tiny hole in and out, which highlights the downside of such a weapon. In real combat, what you actually want is to drill a tiny hole through the hard protective layer on something and then have it explode around inside, ideally not having any bit of an emerge, not zip through and leave a hole no wider than a needle. I'm not sure that would kill someone if you shot them in the brain. 
We are perfectly capable of building guns that fire skinnier bullets, indeed we had a 2.7mm caliber Calibri or Hummingbird round in production way back in 1910, about half and a third the caliber of more conventional 5.56mm or 7.62mm rifle rounds, or a quarter of the typical 9mm pistol round. And if you're curious, a 45 caliber or 0.45 inch wide round is 11.4 millimeters and a 50 cal or half inch wide round is 12.7 millimeters. These 2.7 millimeter rounds didn't catch on, and we can make them skinnier nowadays and have materials like Teflon to make them out of. Or I should say they haven't caught on for small arms, they are a common type of round used by tanks to kill other tanks. Long skinny bullets like darts that fragmented might be very ideal, but unless the bullet was small so it could detonate and fragment when it was ideal, you'd essentially need a bullet designed to go through a very specific type and thickness of armor, which requires an assumption of a lot of standardization in the enemy's armor and their willingness to always have it on. Long, skinny projectiles also aren't stable in the air, which is why arrows need feather fletching or veins. Critically, the main advantage of a smaller caliber bullet is the higher muzzle velocity, but that's a byproduct of being able to go faster on less energy. But the key thing with a typical bullet is trying to get it to expend all of its kinetic energy inside the target, not failing to get in or punching out the back with most of that energy intact. It's energy that does damage here, notwithstanding munitions like toxic darts. This is where we start having the issue with energy and with laser pistols or laser rifles or ray guns. These predate science fiction films and TV as an idea, H.G. Wells' War of the Wars had heat ray guns for instance, and various beam weapons and disintegrator rays were thoroughly popularized by the 1930s, but they make for a very easy and flashy special effect, thus were ideal for films and comic books. Disintegration weapons especially are good for film, as you could just remove the person from the set and avoid needing to show their body afterward. Practically speaking, this is overkill, like blowing up a planet instead of scorching out the thin outer skin everyone lives on. However, you don't want to poke a tiny hole through something either, as we just discussed with needle pistols, and a laser beam isn't going to fragment exactly either. The energy expended burning a hole through someone obviously will radiate out, but it would be cauterizing the wound in the process, which is the exact opposite of what you want to happen to holes you're poking into people while trying to kill or incapacitate them. It also needs to be a very fast shot too, nobody is going to sit still while you burn a hole through them. How much energy does it take to burn a bullet-sized hole through someone? Well, in the case of the heat ray approach, just vaporizing a cylinder shape of matter through someone by sheer energy, uh, quite a lot. Bullet energies are generally on an order of a thousand joules, vaporization energies are generally on an order of a thousand degrees. A thousand joules of energy would heat a kilogram of water up by about a quarter of a degree Celsius, so if you're looking to punch a fist-sized laser hole through someone, you're talking energies more around a million joules and for that same amount of energy you could pump a thousand bullets through them instead. This is usually going to be fatal to anything you should not be screaming and running away from. Of course if you actually have a laser rifle or heat ray gun able to dump a million joules into a single shot, there's not much you need to run away from. I would imagine at least part of the appeal of laser pistols and lightsabers is that you're shooting lightning from your hand and swinging a flaming sword, weapons traditionally reserved for gods and angels and they would indeed be potent weapons. This isn't a type of weapon that armor helps much with, at least in terms of classic hardness. Raw thermal energy is usually not the most efficient weapon, but it's hard to counter, energy beats matter every time. Quantity has a quality all on its own, and as we say on the show, if brute force isn't working, you're not using enough of it, 
and you can foil any armor by just hitting it hard enough, even hypothetical materials that could absorb insane amounts of energy have to follow physics, so either the person inside the armor is getting roasted alive by the dissipated energy as heat, or getting killed by the acceleration of the suit of armor being hurled backward by the impact. As an example, that laser pulse carrying a megajoule has the same energy in it as a car moving 50 meters per second, or 180 kilometers per hour or 110 miles per hour, if that hits you, you're going to feel it. But also tells us heat as a damage vector isn't the best approach, not by torching holes through anyone at least. The average human body needs a couple thousand calories or around 10 million joules of energy a day, and a lot of that is used just to keep the body at a very specific temperature. You don't need to deliver a million joules of heat energy to someone to kill them, indeed just breathing superheated air into your lungs will generally do the trick. Now this mostly has to do with using photons as your damage delivery mechanism, and much like with a spaceship drive, there are certain situations where shooting photons out as your main weapon or main drive is advantageous, but usually you get more bang for your buck using that same energy to accelerate something with mass instead. In terms of raw matter-to-energy, if we imagine some perfect matter-to-energy converter or a box lined with perfect mirrors we could bounce light around inside to store it, then yes, sending out photons is optimal. Using Einstein's equals mc squared, a kilogram of photons contains the same destructive potential as 215 megaton thermonuclear bombs. Alternatively a kilogram of modern bullets, or rather the cartridge containing the bullet and powder, would contain only a few thousand joules of energy, roughly a trillion times less energy than their mass energy, or what that light would hold, or what that weight of antimatter would hold for that matter. However, we do not have energy conversion or storage capable of doing that. Our best batteries, lithium-ion batteries, can only do about a million joules per kilogram of energy storage, ordered lead-acid batteries were more like a fifth of that, and gunpowder is about a dozen times that, and gasoline about four times higher than gunpowder. Which might make you wonder why we don't use gasoline in guns if it's more energy dense. For bullets or any portable power source, storage and speed of use matters a lot. Gunpowder burns in a lot less than a second whereas gasoline takes longer, and batteries take a lot longer than that even to discharge, so not ideal for tightening your finger on the trigger and having a target hit with lethal force an instant later. This is where much better power storage systems can come into play, and we detail those options in our episode Portable Power, but the short form is gunpowder is pretty ideal for its modern role compared to the alternatives. It stores well, it's decently energy dense, and it releases all that energy very quickly in the form of an expanding gas we can shove a bullet with. Now a soldier's layout is obviously going to vary a lot from time to time and situation to situation, but in my own soldiering era a decade back, we usually went into the field carrying 7-10 to 10 magazines of about 30 rounds each, which meant about 3-4 kilograms of ammo for 5.56mm ammo, the kind M16s and M4s fire. 7.62 ammo like the AK-47's fire is about twice as heavy incidentally. The magazines holding the ammo added more weight and the rifle itself weighs about another 3-4 kilograms, but you generally are carrying at least 10 times that weight in armor and other gear, so ammo weight isn't usually your controlling factor. For that matter only a fraction of the ammunition weight is actually gunpowder, or whatever other propellant you are using. Someone with that loadout might be carrying 10 megajoules worth of chemical energy in those propellants though, and our best modern battery would need to weigh about 10 kilograms to do that, and would still need the mass for the guns and the bullets. Now that's not really a weight issue, a backpack battery for a laser rifle or electromagnetically accelerated slug is a real option, 
but it would require a battery that can not only hold that much energy, but release enough to sling a bullet out in a millisecond. We do have some options on the table for batteries with those kinds of energy discharge rates and higher energy densities too, against either portable powered episode. The hold on weapons like this isn't really energy density, though more is better, it's the discharge rate, but capacitors can help with that as can superconductors. Gunpowder and its chemical brethren have ruled the battlefield for centuries now, and probably will for decades to come, but that may not be the case in a century. Being able to slap in a new battery that weighs half a kilogram and is only good for a hundred bullets of up to a kilometer a second is not exactly a dream weapon, but it's not bad either, and that's modern lithium-ion battery densities, and again you could use a backpack which helps a lot. Now if we did something with energy densities a thousandfold higher than modern batteries, and chemical fuels, then yes things like laser beams start making a lot more sense, because it means you don't have to tote heavy ammo around. Needless to say it makes sense in a long range context too, much longer than rifle range like in space, where a bullet fired from a gun at a ship orbiting the same planet as you, ignoring all of the relative motions, might need a few hours to arrive, versus a fraction of a second for a laser. Let's keep on this notion though, and contemplate a gun that didn't require you to lug bullets around, but still let you hit people with massive objects accelerated by energy rather than photons. This is the general notion of things like plasma rifles or plasma cannons. Plasma is a state of matter composed of ionized atoms, ones too hot to hold together as molecules anymore, and being ionized are easily controlled with electromagnetic fields. Your classic fluorescent lamp tube runs on plasma, and looks a lot like a lightsaber, and yes we'll be getting to them shortly, and those individual atoms are whirling around at speeds a lot faster than a bullet. There's no real maximum on how fast they can go either, up to the speed of light, just that plasma is the state matter goes into when it's too hot to even be a normal gas anymore, and those random speeds are generally on an order of kilometers per second, at the bottom end. That's why we like the idea of using plasma as a ship drive propellant. Ignoring various issues plasma has while flying through the air, if you could suck in a gram of air and expel it out the front of your gun as a plasma, at a temperature of about 10,000 Kelvin, those individual particles are moving at about 4 kilometers per second, and that single gram of matter you sucked in and shot out is carrying 16 megajoules of energy in a tight focused strike. And yes, that will ruin your whole day if it hits you, even if you are a big armored tank. Plasma rifles have a nice potential niche in weaponry if you've got good portable power because it lets you use a lot less mass for your bullet, so to speak, and potentially not even need to carry them. If you do carry the plasma rather than sucking in, something like a neon or mercury canister, then faster acceleration and hotter temperatures is preferable, but it's still a lower weight limitation than a modern gun and bullets are. The ability to source your ammunition from the local environment shouldn't be viewed as much of a plus though. Mass manufacturing bullets is easy and resupply via drone should be an option that allows even troops actively engaged in a firefight to receive ammo. Now this source of plasma notion is fairly important where lightsabers are concerned, because the assumption is they are carrying around a roughly 1-2 kilogram cylinder that contains all you need to run that laser sword or plasma knife or whichever for an hour or more. There is no real world equivalent that's going to match what they do, because what they do changes by film and author. But what they probably would need to do, if they're just a nice plasma torch, would be to have an atomic or antimatter power supply and a powerful pump sucking air into the hilt to shoot out as the plasma. The one in the famous Hacksmith video runs on propane and oxygen, same as your grill, which means it's just carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen, all probably plentiful in any human breathable atmosphere. Again see that video for a detailed explanation of how theirs worked. 
The one they made is awesome, and it works, but it isn't a real lightsaber, because you can't parry with it to block strikes, you can't throw it around at people using the force to control it, you can't precisely cut someone's bonds without burning them, and so on. What could do it? Options are very limited, having something like a plasma contained by a force field or magnetic field would seem to suffer from the problem that while the field is keeping the plasma in a nice tight cylinder of a blade, it ought to be keeping it from damaging things it touches since the plasma can't get out of the field. This version has the advantage of a parry of two such blades making some sense though, since their force fields could presumably bounce off each other, and we might hypothesize the fields containing the plasma had some very specific characteristics, so they only bounced off each other not other things, and only interacted with their plasma not other matter. Another alternative is a beam, but a continuous beam besides seeming energy wasteful would be just that, a beam not really any more appropriate for a melee duel than wielding a machine gun in one hand while depressing the trigger and parrying your enemy with a barrel. Possibly we could do a weapon where the particle was coming out if it had a half-life, something that came out at a speed that made it decay after about a meter on average. That would mean the blade would still be half as strong at two meters, and it would also mean it needs to decay into something harmless. When would it be useful though? Uh, That's very hard to say because it's certainly handy to have a portable welding torch that can cut through titanium but usually the only reason for melee in a futuristic context, besides that it looks cool, which is only a good justification for science fiction, not reality sadly, is if the target is somehow hardened against long-range weapons or unable to be hit by them. That is a bit more plausible in some ways. As an example, we might come up with materials that are much harder to pierce than modern body armor, but be stuck with guns no better than modern ones, or we could see force fields develop that were bulletproof, but not airproof or knifeproof like we see in the Dune novels, or some of their equivalents that we examined in our force field episode, like using tiny drones to intercept bullets. Your enemy fires a bunch of bullets at you and your own smart and miniaturized point defense turrets lob a bunch of tinier bullets at their bullets. Only at close range are reaction times for interceptive attack too long to work perhaps. Scenarios like that might conceivably see more melee combat in the future. Of course just because you have armor or bullet that can't get through someone doesn't mean someone's sword or knife will, or their plasma sword or gun too. Plasma for instance is very easily shoved around by electromagnetic fields, so objects can be toughened against them by having an electromagnetic force field, which could scatter, deflect, or simply blunt them. We do see other super sharp weapons in sci-fi, I already mentioned monofilament blades and wire, vibroblades is another popular one though it's often unclear how they work, it can be anything from some sonic effect to basically mimicking an electric knife or chainsaw. Power swords tend to be popular too, and a lot like the lightsaber only they either are the whole blade, not just the hilt, or sometimes have a retractable blade. This works, and some extendable bit of superheated tungsten, or superheated alloy, is going to glow like a flaming sword and cut through things very well, though still fundamentally not as well as a lot of existing cutting devices that focus on being hard, tough, and sharp. A powered saw will probably cut most materials better than a hot blade, in terms of energy per cut. Indeed the very grimdark and grungy chainsword of settings like Warhammer 40k probably have the higher end of realism here. Still, something very hot can cut well, and with a bit of hand waving a nice portable power supply and a material even more heat resistant than tungsten, could be sent into the hilt that telescoped out and charged up, to have a nice and lethal plasma halo around it. It would still be a physical blade, so you probably don't want to be smashing into thickly armored stuff constantly. What other type of weapon before we close out? We see a lot of blades or bullets that can just ignore armor, phasing right through them, like the phase swords we see in some sci-fi, 
and this one does have some basis in science. We have particles like neutrinos or neutral mesons or whatever dark matter is which by and large don't interact with matter much. Neutrinos will go right through matter, including armor, but also including humans so not a good weapon. However, a meson is a very short-lived particle and decays into more mundane matter rather quickly, so you could potentially have short-range weapons that fired off ultra-relativistic mesons that decayed after passing through armor, and since a half-life would be translatable into a distance they covered in which about half of them would have decayed before getting there, and only one in a thousand would still be around after ten times that distance, it is pretty suited for something close-range. Obviously we can't cover all the close combat weapons we see in science fiction today, I doubt we could even name them all in an hour, but we begin to see both the difficulties of improving weapons and some of the paths that might take. As I said earlier, while close range combat is usually not something that represents the height of your technology or martial might, it does tend to happen and probably will in the future too, whether or not it's humans doing the actual fighting, or tiny robots or giant robots, or humans and giant robots. So there's no extended edition for today's episode, as I've been busy moving and getting settled into the new house and studio, and it's involved an awful lot of yard and house projects. One of those is setting up some new raised bed gardens. I've often recommended Skillshare as a great place to go to learn skills like writing or video production animation, but it's also home to a lot of lifestyle and productivity classes, like Sunny Green's Easy Gardening, and I really can't recommend enough having some hands-on and outdoor skills and hobbies. Gardening is probably one of the best, and it's a great example of Skillshare's philosophy of having classes for every skill level. Whether you're a beginner, a pro, a dabbler, or a master, there's always more to learn or to get ideas and inspiration from. Skillshare is an online learning community for creatives, where millions come together to take their next step in their creative journey, and members get unlimited access to thousands of inspiring classes, with hands-on projects and feedback from a community of millions. If you'd like to give it a try, the first 1,000 people to click the link in my episode description will get a free trial of Skillshare Premium so you can explore your creativity. Act now and start learning today. So that will wrap us up for our mid-month Sci-Fi Sunday episode, next month though we'll follow this topic up with a look at Death Rays. Until then we've got an episode on Arcology Design where we'll look at some of the critical concepts in these hypothetical super buildings meant to contain thousands of people and their ecosystems this Thursday. Then we'll close the month out with a look at how solar flares might impact the Fermi Paradox, and return here two Sundays from now for our end of the month livestream Q&A. Then we'll head into June with a look at the concept of two alien races both evolving civilizations on the same world, and if they might share it in peace. Then we will look at some future Manhattan projects, which might be handy for those who cannot share their world in peace. If you want to know us when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel, and if you'd like to help support future episodes you can donate to us on Patreon or on our website IsaacArthur.net, which I'll link in the episode description below along with all of our various social media forums where you can get updates and chat with others about the concepts in the episodes and many other futuristic ideas. You can also follow us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify to get our audio-only versions of the show. Until next time, thanks for watching, and have a great week.